Welcome to the European Hockey Federation podcast. In conversation with the biggest names in hockey, generating insight and engagement around coaching, officiating and playing. Powered by CoachLogic and supported by the FIH Academy. Presented by Jack Rolf, the founder of The Coaching Lab. The first episode provides a unique chance to ask former GB head coach Bobby Crutchley his views on hockey, sport, coaching and the unique roles he has held throughout the sporting world. Over to Jack. Kick off firstly with with Bobby Crutchley, former GB assistant head coach, um, now working in two different sports, gymnastics uh, and in football. Um, Bobby, thank you very much for your time. I'm sure you're pretty busy with the kids at home and a lot going on with Zoom meetings everywhere. Um, I'd like to work backwards, Bobby, to start with. Um, you're a performance coach developer within British Gymnastics and also doing a similar role within the Premier League Academies. I wonder if you could just give us a bit of background of what, is your, what do your normal weeks look like? What is your day-to-day roles and the responsibilities you've got? Yeah, I work four days a week with British Gymnastics, so that's certainly my main job. And, and the role is very varied and very different than coming out of a... a coaching on the front line. So I spend my day working on the performance department. So looking at just our Olympic sports and trying to support the coaches who work um, with the senior and junior athletes. So pretty much focused on Tokyo now next year, as we know, uh, Paris and, and even Los Angeles. But because I've gone into it, I'd say they're probably the most, as different a sport as I could <laughs> in terms of individual sport, early specialization. It's a judge sport. It's, um, yeah, it's, the challenges are just understanding that performance environment. And because of their work, often with personal coaches, the number of coaches we have across the gymnasts is almost the same number. So for 30 coaches, sorry, 30 gymnasts with their personal coaches and the national coaches involved, you're probably looking at about 30 coaches as well. So. There's a lot of work to be done and really trying to just support their, those guys um, develop the best, uh, the gymnasts as well as they can. And what does, you say support, but what does that support look like? What are you trying to do to, to hopefully support the coach and the athlete? Yeah, so that varies from some more pure one-to-one mentoring towards more um, finding development opportunities for them. We've got... Um, some great opportunities for UK sport and UK coaching to offer the right coach, the right program. Um, and also really just trying to put on extra um, educational opportunity for them so they continue to learn and continue to develop. And that can come in all sorts of formats, whether it's, we're doing quite a lot of coach forums at the moment via, via different webinars similar to this. But it, it's actually, although it's difficult time for us, it's actually time when coaches actually have got a bit more time on their hand to do some learning and development so we're trying to utilize that opportunity as much as possible yeah you spent almost 15 years with GB as the assistant and then the head coach in the later years you've gone from a very team-based kind of older um, age sport to a very young as you say early specialization sport what have you taken from hockey into gymnastics and the second part of that question what will you if you go back into coaching again what do you take from gymnastics into hockey? I think you've got to look at the culture of sports when you go in and help them and you've got to try and learn them. I think it would be completely um, 
wrong of me to go and try and impose I know the way to go about it. So I've gone in very much in trying to learn and understand the sport first. Without a doubt, the cultures are very different, as you said. It's an early specialization sport. It's individualized. It's very much a close one-to-one, almost one-to-two sometimes, um, coach-to-gymnast relationship. And, and they work in those small groups. So it is very different. But also because of the fact that there's a big safety element in what they're trying to do. A lot of their coach education process is built around the safety of doing the skill. So they are very advanced in a lot of ways of building skill, building within that safety and developing fundamentals that allow them to achieve great, great skills. So they spend a lot of time on that, which is something I think we could definitely learn in hockey. But what they probably do because they have spent so much time in that looking at pure pedagogy or experiment with different coaching styles and being a little bit more empowering become is more difficult because of the age, but also because they have to work so hard on the safety access and developing big skills. Um, That hopefully, what I will try and do is bring in a little bit more of that side of it and help um, develop that area. Without a doubt, in gymnastics, we still have good coaches who are able to do that. But I think broadly within the culture across the sport, it's probably less advanced. And how did you find your first few weeks? Was it a, a big change and being from a <laughs> team environment to go into a, another different environment? How, how was that first few weeks? Yeah, I was reflecting on it the other day coming on to here. And, and I think I'd probably been involved in team sports since I was about six, playing and straight into being a coach. I'd always had a team and at 48 when I left GB probably the first time I didn't have a team whether as a player or a coach and that that for me was quite strange uh, and automatic although it, it, it actually did re- help refresh me the fact that I had some more space and time but going into gymnastics first you have to do is you have to learn, you have to have the respect, the fact you're going into a different environment where people are experts in this area and you have to respect that and then learn what's going on. So even for me, I, I mean, I'd seen gymnastics, I'd seen, and I work in artistic gymnastics and trampoline, but I didn't really know. I didn't even know all the apparatus and which the men did and the women did. And so just yeah. basic stuff like that. So at least you can have a conversation with a coach that allows mm. you then to dig a little bit more deeper into the, into the specialism of coaching. But ultimately what we end up talking about within hockey or within football or within gymnastics nearly always is about relationships because we're about developing people. And the skills we have to have in coaching are about how you get the best out of those people. And they, despite the differences in culture and the difference in language and the difference obviously in the sports, those conversations often are very similar. And do you think that relationships were harder to build because you came from such a different sport rather than being a former gymnastist, gymnast going into, into that yeah, field? Yeah, interesting. I think with some, yes, um, without a doubt. Um, I think it is. But with others, it's probably easier because they're interested in you coming from a different sport. And we see that a lot within sports is we see people from outside sometimes having an advantage because people, you know, you, you, you want to hear what they've got to say, but also you have the disadvantage of you. You don't have the knowledge. You don't have that deep-rooted understanding of the culture. So a lot of my job was in the first year is asking why they did stuff, asking the stupid question in effect. 
and hoping that allows them to dig a little bit deeper and challenge their own practice without me being threatening and saying you're doing it the wrong way. Yep. Uh, and then going to the Premier League side, uh, within the academies, obviously, very similar sport, football and hockey, they share a lot of similar dynamics. But in terms of that youth development, it's probably the complete opposite scale one because of the funding, but also the yeah. contact time these players and clubs have got together. You know, what does your work look like there? And so can you share some insight around that? Yeah, so I, I currently work with individual coaches uh, who are on Premier League programmes. The, the clubs I work in tend not to be in the Premier League, tend to be further down the, um, the tier of football, but they're still funded by the Premier League. Um, but within those academies, still the funding is, is for, it's a dream it would be for, for us in hockey. Mm -hmm. um, but my work is really working on those individuals, those individual, what the challenges are for that individual at any stage of, uh, of their development and how we can support them. And as you say, the scale is, is often one of the biggest challenge, how they, how they as coaches continue to develop and how they continue to stay relevant, managing themselves within a vast organization, a big club. Um, but without doubt, in academies, there's some incredibly good work going on with really young um, uh, footballers. Too young often. Yep. And that's one of the challenges they have. And interestingly, I'm a big fan, particularly within team sports, if you play lots of games and you, you, you play lots of different sports and then you find you know, the one that works for you. Within academies, I've seen a number of academies, who coaches who understand that actually playing different sports within football academies. So I've seen hockey sticks out, tennis rackets out at football academies because they almost have to manufacture what would usually happen, which is kids playing with their mates and trying everything. Yeah, and uh, I think their environments, you know, I can speak, having been in some of them, I think their environments that get a lot of criticism because people haven't seen what goes on inside. But, you know, but I think particularly a lot of those kids are very fortunate, as you say, with the education they get and the quality of coaching. And the opportunities they get as well. Yeah, and interest. I, I mean, I've, I have the same criticism. A lot of football is very insular, but the people I've met in football generally are incredibly out outward looking and looking to learn more from other different areas. So it's probably the opposite of what I've experienced. Yeah, and I think just to bring that to a close, one of the things I noticed was they just want the best for every child. They ultimately just want every kid to play at the best level. Um, and that's one of the things I've taken from football academies. Yeah, no, absolutely. And the good coaches will do that. And the good coaches care because they know their percentage of transitioning into a Premier League footballer is so small percentage wise. They've got to do something beyond just creating that footballer. Possibly. Mm, um, just lastly on the coach development stuff, and this one comes in from Santi Fresher, uh, someone you probably coached against. Uh, Hi, Santi. Um, what tips are you giving consistently to coaches? What's some of the common messages you're sharing? Um, learn lots so and I think this is go out and, 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 and look to get things that stimulate your learning and development so whatever that may be whatever environment that is but don't think there's a magic answer anywhere you've got to find your own way to do it I think one of the challenges we have sometimes within coaching we get onto the the new thing or the thing that's going to be the answer and I have to tell you the answer is not never in one thing it's in a collective of things so actually utilizing finding good learning opportunities speak to people in all different sorts outside of sport as well their environments to see the challenges they face and um yeah and, and use that to stimulate your own learning and how it can impact upon you 
You've had a lot of different experiences outside of hockey in the past couple of years. Do you think if you had those experiences almost earlier and during your career of coaching GB, um, would you be a different coach? Would you see things differently? Um, I, w- I probably would be, but again, it's got to be the time to write for you. I'd like to think I'd be a better coach now, because, mm. but I think that's down to experience and the fact that, kind of like I was saying, I'd like to think I'm someone who tries to learn and continue to learn and continue to develop. I work with three head coaches in British gymnastics who are all older than me. I wouldn't, hopefully they're not on here. Um, so I don't see myself as someone who was a coach and now I'm developing. So I see myself as a coach who is still a coach and I'm working in a different environment, trying to help and support people and develop people as I was before. So, yeah, so I don't know whether that answers the question, but I definitely see myself continuing to be better and improve. And wherever that takes me, whether it's back into frontline coaching or continuing coach development or people development in a different area, I see myself continuing to improve and continue to be better. I'd like to think so anyway. Good stuff. Um, moving on, you've obviously been away from the programme for a couple of years. Do you miss it? Or what, what's your feelings around that? Yeah, I, 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 easy answer is no. I don't wake up thinking I wish I was back in it. I definitely miss the people, the athletes and staff. I had fantastic time, really enjoyed it loved going and working with them every day and probably if I'm honest I do miss that a bit but it doesn't keep me awake at night it doesn't worry me um I think I got out because I just I, I just didn't have the energy I'd had previously and if you're a frontline coach for your national your head coach for your national team you've got to have your energy and it's one thing that concerns me at the moment and one thing I'm part of my role is to try and make sure we have coaches with energy that don't burn themselves out. And so making sure we give them the support. Um, so for me, it was the right time to step away. And probably six months ago, you know, I probably wouldn't even be doing this webinar because I just I wouldn't have had an interest in coming back and doing anything in hockey. I just wanted to do something else. Yeah. Probably I'm sparked a little bit more again, looking to get, wanted to do something back in hockey and not totally step away from the sport. And I was looking forward to the Easter program. Unfortunately, isn't, to be one of the mentors on um, Euro hockey courses. And that, but unfortunately, that's not going to happen. But um, I think without doubt, I miss people. I miss the fact that the working with those people, but ultimately I'm in a really good place doing a lot of work I'm fascinated by and, and really enjoying the people I'm working with now. Yeah, I think there's probably a lot of coaches that rack up a lot of hours on you know, this grass and on the field of play. And when you was in that position, how was you finding the energy, you know, to keep learning and to find the space to, to be yourself in such a full-on programme? Yeah, it's difficult. And it? it's you need to create space somehow. Um, and you need to create space. So often I'd used to go on holiday with my wife. And the first two days I was just almost just slept. And then I had a couple of days where we spent a lot of time where I try and forget about the sport. And then... About four days in, I'd start thinking about it again and I'd come up with some of my best ideas. I didn't tell her I was thinking about it again. But it kind of, they come up because I'd got a bit of clarity and I got a bit of space. And the best analogy I've seen in the current situation, which obviously is dreadful, but gives us opportunities, the Venice canals. The Venice canals have so much traffic around them that they create, you know, the, 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 you can't see through the, uh, the, the water at all. It's not clear at all until recently. 
And so they've started, some people who've lived in Venice all their life have never seen the fish in the canals and they're starting to see them now. I mean, a dolphin's even been spotted outside in the water. And that's a great analogy for me for high performance sport is we do so much stuff, it creates traffic, it creates a lack of clarity sometimes. That means we can't see enough and actually get that space. Make sure you, you stop the traffic for a bit. Allow yourself to see, right, what are the really important things? What's the big picture stuff we need to sort out and really redirect ourselves towards? I suppose that's where England's slightly different to a lot of other countries that both the men and women are on a full programme, full-time programme, and they live with each other, they eat with each other, and, you know, they live in Bisham Abbey pretty much, whereas a lot of other countries, you know, some of the leading countries wouldn't be in such a full-time programme. Is that something that, you know, potentially we should be looking at post-Tokyo? Yeah, it's, it's, it's an ongoing discussion and, and I won't go into the specifics around England and Great Britain because I know we've got lots of people around Europe. They don't live at Bisham, so they do go, have a house, but they live in the area, so they do get a little bit away from it. Uh, I think one of the extra challenges is when the centralised programmes start is the calendar was pretty big and now the international calendar's got even bigger, so there doesn't seem, as I say, to be that space and time to get away. Mm. And I've now gone to a sport which isn't centralised. And you can definitely see the strengths and the weaknesses between both. Um, I think as we evolve, and I think Great Britain Hockey will be clever enough to know that nothing stands still and they'll be continuing to evaluate, evaluate how best the system works. But I'm going to be brutally honest, if England or Great Britain didn't have the centralised programme, their domestic competition doesn't stack up. There's a high enough quality to produce the player without more contact time at international level, if they want to be competitive at international level. Mm. I think that's brutally, I think that's the, the, the honesty about it, one of the reasons it, it's a bit of a chicken and egg. So how do you make your domestic um, league strong enough to support you so you haven't got to be more centralised? I think a lot of people would like that. And certainly for me, philosophically, I always wanted that. I'm from the north of England, so I didn't want, I want players to be able to play in the north of England and not have the best players to come, have to come to the London area. But the reality is, if we wanted to be competitive um, with the rest of the world, and in those, we had to do something a bit different. Hmm. Um, obviously, involved for almost fifteen years um, at the start as the assistant coach, and then moving on as as the head coach after twenty twelve. What was that transition like? Was you prepared? Was it the master plan to take over? Um, what did those couple of years look like? It certainly wasn't the master plan. I think towards the end of, I, I chatted to Jason about my, um, Jason Lee who was the head coach, chatting about my ambitions. And he was aware that I, at some stage, wanted to be a head coach. It wasn't necessarily taking Jason's job, but it was, it was something I wanted to do. The biggest transition in explaining to people, so when you're an assistant coach, you're about 90% of what you do is hockey and the 10% is the other stuff. You almost totally flip that when you become head coach in a national team that has good funding, that has a large number of support staff. That you And one thing we don't do is train people to be able to cope with that. So we have a massive, both within gymnastics and hockey now, great support net of staff, predominantly through the English Institute of Sport. But what, we, what you are as a head coach is you're still the expert of the sport. And so what you have to have are the skills to be able to still direct all those staff in the vision you want. And one of the problems I see regularly when I go around other sports is you have coaches who struggle with that 
and either dismiss practitioners to go and work off on their own so they're isolated or just don't want to have anything to do with them and don't have those skills so you built you yeah you're building a, a big team where you've really got to um keep everybody pointing in the same direction because you know the sport better than anyone else so when you work with practitioners you have to know enough knowledge to get the best out of them and use their specialist skill but you're still the person who needs to direct them and that's something I think within British sport, we, we're still getting our heads around a bit. And you said skills there a couple of times. What would those skills look like? And I appreciate that's a golden question, but what would be... From the head coach's position? That, that, I think maybe from both, from the system yeah. and head. Yeah, so, so, head, so obviously the leadership stuff around the head coach's position about build, um, building that team around the team, creating really good relationships, but still knowing you're the person who's ultimately in charge. I've got it described by you. You're basically in charge of a tanker or a ship tanker, and you've got to keep nudging it in the right direction, you know, but you haven't got total control of it because it is a big beast sometimes. Um, as assistant coach, I think you, your job obviously is to be able to translate the vision of the head coach, challenge appropriately, bring your own thoughts and ideas and not just be a yes person but ultimately be able to deliver what they want. And that is sometimes a very difficult job and some struggle where you can challenge effectively, but ultimately you're supporting that person as much as possible. Mm. I think Eddie Jones spoke about something similar that if he had three assistant coaches, he doesn't want three exactly the same. He almost wants three different personalities to support the head coach. Yeah, and I've worked with assistant coaches um, with very different personalities and all have been highly effective in their way. So it's, I totally appreciate it. But again, within that broader staff, and this is where, you know, I think sometimes until you, you, you get into big programs with big funding is the impact of a psychologist, a nutritionist, your physio team, your doctors, you know, and goes on, your performance lifestyle we have in um, your performance analysts, understanding enough around all those areas and with your assistant coaches and being able to continue to have a good relationship with your, your large playing group is, is a big challenge and something you don't prepare yourself coming through. Certainly in a sport like hockey is most clubs will have a much smaller team. So you're not coming from like for like, so you're not being prepared effectively as potentially you, you, you should, you want to be. Uh, what was your first day like as, as head coach? You've gone from the, being the assistant to walking into a similar group of players to being the head coach. Yes, we, we, we'd actually had quite a bit of a turnaround of, of, of players because um, it was after the 2012 Olympics. So home Olympics, we had a lot of players retire after that or at least taking some time away. So it was a big rebuilding phase, which at the time was a bit scary because we had a we hadn't had our funding confirmed, so we'd stopped the programme really until around, I think it was February, March time, 2013. And then we very quickly had a World Cup qualifier in Malaysia. So it was a bit nervy to try and make sure I didn't mess up in my first um, outing. But actually, it gave us something very short term to uh, concentrate on and actually get our teeth into, actually, which, which, which was pretty good. So, yeah. I suppose you're an advantage because you've lived as the assistant within that group and going in as head coach, you probably had a few ideas of how you changed that post Olympics and putting your own mark on it as well. 
Yeah, I mean, like all good teams, you evolve. And I'd, I'd seen the evolution of the team and I'd seen the next crop of players and where their strengths were and how we might want to t- tweak and change a few things. So, yeah, it was, it, 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 I had that knowledge, which was a strength definitely to, for the next stage. And what was some of the stuff you, you know, I suppose not just in GB, but if a new coach goes into a programme, what's some of the stuff they'd be looking at to influence within the first few weeks? Yeah, I, I, I think I think try and not do too much too quickly is really important. Coming back to my piece about going in and get, trying to understand stuff going on, try. I think people sometimes will want to go in and make an impression, make a really good impression, and overplay that. And rather than just hold back, make sure things are going to be able to tick over and learn. So if you're going to make some big decisions, you do it with as much knowledge as possible. Mm-hmm. But also around that time when I became head coach, we'd just gone and started a centralised programme for the men. So that was obviously a big piece of work that had to be done. And again, setting that up so we were making sure it was good for the long term was really important. Who was your assistant coaches at the time? Who did you have? So we appointed, so I had John Bleeby had come in um, and David Ralph came in slightly later um, because he was committed to Loughborough. Uh, John Bleeby was working with our under-21s, but part-time with the senior group. So we use those guys, and, and John's still doing the development and under-21s with the England and GB men and doing a great job. I think he, I think he's the work that, that's gone on there potentially stands us in good, better stead for the future, actually. Because I think that's an area which, without want to be, I'm not being critical of anybody, but if you just looked at Junior World Cup results for England, the fact that we were still able to be competitive senior level, despite the fact that we had junior teams that were significantly down in the last few junior World Cups was important. But I think John's managed to change that and actually make us competitive again at under 21 level. That means the quality of the player coming in, the talent pool you get coming in is, is, is much better. So hopefully that will continue and hopefully that will stand the senior group in good stead. Fingers crossed. Um, and, as, you know, almost going to John a little bit there, of how many conversations are you having and are you influencing maybe what the training looks like or what you're looking for in a player? What's the sort of relationship between that development role and the head coach? Yeah, so we had, a, obviously, we worked quite a lot together um, and had done for some time and coached John when he was a player, so I knew him for well. Um, just enough communication that you you know enough what's going on, you definitely have an interest in it you have an impact you influence how it's done uh but he's still ultimately you're not around all the time so you need to trust your person working with that group to actually still lead it but definitely be around have an interest know what's coming through have an understanding about the type of player that's coming through the work that's being done and suggest how it can be improved definitely we spoke about transition quite a lot and i suppose within that 15 years you've seen the rules change probably almost every single year the way the FIH are working with certain rules picking up on one of them would be the self-pass and the free hit element of that how did that influence training and and how immediate was that yeah I mean I think I probably like a lot of old coaches the changing in rules just 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 drove me mad in the end and there's without doubt some have been brilliant and the self-pass is a good example about a good rule change I think but I but yeah, just the number probably drove me mad because we were trying to get used to how things were going to be. Um, we worked at intensity anyway. And I think 
you knew that the game is quick. The game is very quick. And actually, I think people are starting to realize, particularly if you want to make it commercially successful, it's probably too quick. Um, whereas the rule makers, the, the drivers seem to be, we just want to make this game quicker and quicker because someone said that watching it, a quick games are good and fun and exciting. Um, but the self-pass rule definitely worked, but it definitely just made everything just quicker. So the game just got on fast. So transition was vital anyway. It just became a, another form of that, really, to, to, to be ready for it and how you created um, opportunities through it and nullified the opposition as much as possible through it. The general principles around that were similar to the speed of transition. And when a new rule comes in, do you sit down with, with you know, your assistant coaches or the playing group and say, how do we break this? Do you look at Belgium with the overhead rule? They've pretty much worked out a way to break it. Um, I think the umpires probably don't like them for it, but they found a way to use the overhead because of the new rule to their advantage. You think you're always looking to gain advantage, whether that's through a new rule or the op way the opposition are playing, new principles you want to think you know the umpires even though the rules might change they might be start umpiring things slightly differently and we've certainly seen we've certainly seen all that so without doubt you're always trying to gain advantage and you would definitely have conversations with the assistant coaches with the player group about what we're looking at here and ultimately what you're trying to find is best answers for you as a group which is different for every team and then how you could put people on the same page, make up sure everybody understands what each other's trying to do so you can actually create some tactical work that's going to be consistently effective, not just effective in a one-off. Yeah. Being away from the game, and I know we spoke about this a little bit off-air, you've managed to still watch a bit of hockey and pick up some common trends. Of, do you see hockey differently now? Are you looking at it in a different way? And, and how much hockey are you watching? I certainly didn't watch a lot when I first stopped and I have gradually watched a little bit more, but I certainly don't watch as anything like as much as I used to. It's interesting when I, you know, through social media or you hear the conversations or I still chat to a number of mates in hockey and, 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 and when I watch it, I see some of the, I, I think there's a lot of talk about team stuff and ultimately I think where we sometimes aren't critical or analytical enough is some of that individual's um, work. So as a coach, I look, people talk about zo zones or man-to-man -man or this type of zone or that type of zone, but I don't hear enough detail about, but what is the individual quality of the defender like within that team setter? Without doubt, the best teams often are still the ones who have those individual diligence and the quality of the individuals so individual defending for example is still so important but could get lost because all you spend too long talking about team defense they're both obviously important but the individual quality within that you can have the best setup as you want but if you've got individuals who aren't performing with the level of quality you need them to then that's going to be a problem so i think sometimes we can get a bit broad and not work enough on the detail and the game's been so quick now that that detail is being shared across you know all 16 players effectively that are on the on the squad absolutely yeah yeah and and then coming back to what i said before is about how you get teams to to work collaboratively and quick within their speed is because you've got to have a, a real clear understanding of what you're trying to achieve 
whilst allowing individuals to to make decisions on their own. Just had a question pop up here about how do you develop individual players when they spend most of their time within a club setting? Yeah, and I th yeah. So obviously, with, with the central program, we we didn't really have that as much of a challenge. But if you are working um, with players who you don't see often enough, know as much about them as possible, because then your ability to impact on them will be um, good. And don't try and change too much, and try and work out what it is you really want to, which is your priority list, and spend your time on that. So it's, I think, what often we do is we look at a hockey player or we look at it and we think right they need to improve that and I certainly I used to still do it as a, a coach you'd look at a player and you go well that's what I need to work on but just taking a little bit of time to understand where they've come from what what's going on in their clubs but what's going on in their family life what's going on and so you understand that person as a whole a bit more and then from there you probably get a better understanding on why they might be playing or doing certain things and then realise, work out how much time you've got with them, what the priorities are, what you can achieve, what you can't achieve. And work from there, really. Good stuff. Um, what's one team you'd absolutely love to coach at the moment? If you're looking at all the nations, <laughs> or, you know, who would you think, if I could have the golden ticket, what they're doing really, really well? Um... <laughs> I don't know. I think I think I think as a coach, what you want to probably I probably won't say anyone. I'll probably avoid it. Um, uh, I probably you probably want the team on the way up. You don't want the team at the top now. <laughs> the way up, there's, there's only one way you're going to go. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting. I don't I don't honestly know. If I want to coach one team, I'd coach Nestor, which was my first club team, but way down the <laughs> leagues in the northwest of England. But it'd be a it's my heart. But I'd be okay. I'd be really interested in the international team, I'd really men's game, I'd be really interested to see um the development of, of, of India at the moment. I still think whilst they've been around that top few for a bit, uh I'd be really interested if Graham Reed can can get them to take the next step. An Australian coach as well, so I'm sure there'll be firepower. Um just on the Olympics one. You know, it's coming from Chris Marriott here is with the delay to the Olympics. Um, what does that look like for gymnastics and probably hockey as well? Yeah, so we've had lots of conversations and I think probably for both sports is there'll be players will be delighted. Maybe a, the younger player who thinks, oh, I've probably got an opportunity now I wouldn't have had. Or a player who's had an injury issue who was fighting that because selection was so close. Teams were selecting, might think, that gives me an opportunity to get myself fully fit and ready to go for it. And then those who are flying, who knew they were in pole position, who probably, uh, you know, it's really bad news for them. So I think there's, yeah, I think it'd be very different for different people. But I think we ultimately, as long as we are not in lockdown for too much longer, I think for lots of sports, this almost forced stop, take, take, take stock of where you're at, be able to look at things the countries that are able to use this most effectively i think will will be the ones who are ultimately successful we spoke a little bit previously about the individual and the attention to detail and jimmy colnay brings up the question of how do we encourage attention to detail in this generation of learners that are often driven by technology more than the coach maybe 
Yeah, it's, 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 it's a challenge. And I think this is where we have to develop incredibly skilled coaches where they, the attention to detail, the fundamentals of your sport, and this is what I've seen in gymnastics a lot, the fundamentals, how you can still get kids to be inspired by doing them. We know we, we can, we were trying to fool the players often to do a different practice or they think it's different, but actually they're practicing the same stuff a lot of the time. That is the skill of the coach. But ultimately, I don't think we need to overplay that, particularly when you get towards some real elite level. I think you almost challenge uh, the players to find out who's going to be the diligent ones to spend time doing it. Uh, and we can sometimes find ourselves in a bit in that situation of we have to do it for them. You'll still find there's still kids, even in this current generation, um, who still want, are still very committed to working on their sport and doing it. And I think you highlight that and encourage that. Become skilled at how you talk to them in terms of building a relationship, continue to get them understanding and motivating them, but intrinsically motivating them so they're intrinsically motivated, not motivating them so they're doing it for you. Mm. Got a question here from, from Rob Sowell who speaks about leadership groups and what roles and responsibilities they take within, within the squad. Yeah, so I've, I've used leadership groups like, like most people and they've taken everything from organising socially where the group's at to, to prescribing specific uh, tasks within, say, analysis. Um, and I, but there is no right or wrong in any of this. What it is you have to get is a great understanding of your group of players and what will work most effectively for you. That, or if you're in a development group, what will help that group develop most effectively. And I think they're two very different things. So if you're working with a senior team where it's about results, what's going to work most effectively for you? If you're in the development team, what's going to be the best way to help those players develop both within the group and outside the group? And how um, have you gone about guiding your, you know, your uh, leadership group? Has it always kind of been maybe coach-led of you have a few favourites of who you'd like to see in there or player-driven? I've done everything from telling them who's in it, who's not in it, to them voting on it, voting for captains um, and everything between. And, and it very much depends on where your team's at at that moment, what they need. And, and it's, there's not a right answer. Some tell them that sometimes you need to make decisions because that's right for the team at that time. Sometimes you need to empower the others to make the decisions. And again, there's no right or wrong answers in this. There is, the answer is know what's going on in your group, what's going to work best, how it can work effectively. And that is about spending time with individuals and the group as a whole. Really good quality conversations. Those relationships, as I said about earlier, are really important. And then, and then deciding what's the best way forward from there. Yeah, and something you've mentioned from the word go is obviously not just always looking at the hockey, it's the, the wider stuff that goes on or outside of the game and goes on outside of training. And um, Pando or Graham Mansell Grace, as he's formerly known, um, how important is it to have an interest or hobby away from hockey? Uh, and do you have one? <laughs> My interest in that and my hobby now, hockey, it's good. It's, uh, it's coming back to being the fun bit, um, which, is, which is an interesting thing because I think one of my biggest mistakes as a coach is 
I lost, I lost the fun of it a bit. And, um, and that was a tough learn for me. Um, but it is without doubt coming back. You basically need, for two reasons, you need to explore outside. One, to learn for your development as a coach within hockey. But two, just to be able to switch off so you can switch back on and come back to that, being able to have clarity in what you're doing and what's around you and having to be able to take space away. So definitely um, useful to have a hobby. I didn't play, almost. I played almost no golf for about 10 years, which is which I'm now hoping will change, although this hasn't helped. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it, it's interesting you get the balance right because what I'm nervous about as, as someone is, is that we potentially will lose coaches through them not being able to manage their own energy and the size and scale of the job now just gets bigger. Mm. Um, question from Mike Hughes around biggest learning post Rio. Um, obviously had two years after Rio you know what was you looking to do in that two years um, and what was your learnings from Rio probably a bit of that for, for me personally a bit of that this is meant to be fun and I'd um, I'd got myself in a little bit of a um, a little bit of position where I wasn't able to bring the best me to it because I was probably a little didn't get the balance right um, the learnings, yeah, the, the problem you have is, is that within our sport and the Olympic sport, if you're working is the, most people see your Olympic results. We've been in the top four for every tournament pretty much up to the Olympics. And we did pretty damn well after it. You know, and that's the, the problem is I have, we have one, we've managed to pick our worst tournament for my whole time in charge in the, the worst two weeks possible. But yeah, and so my, but my, lear, my big learning for me was... Um, and that around the enjoyment. And to be fair, we had a, a new sports psychologist come and work with us in the program, Katie Warren, who's, who's still there, who's, who's, who's excellent. And she did some great work, both with me personally and with the group around understanding why you do what you do. Um, and me understanding my why uh, is really important. And it's, it's, I think it's really important for everybody. Mm -hmm. Remember what got you, why you were so interested in the sport that you ended up wanting to coach it. What is it about it? And remember, and for me, elite sport is still my biggest passion. I'm not at the front line now, but it's still my passion to how we can win. But it's about the fun of the competition. And whether that's Olympic Games or having a kick around in the back garden with your mates, it's, it, it, you, have to, you have to be able to still have that same personal enjoyment from it. That is for me. It might be different for other people, but that's definitely it for me. Nice, Mike, I hope that answered you, your question. Uh, we've got another one here from Leon Webster, a bit more kind of session design of kind of stuff. Uh, how do you identify areas of improvement and then how do you implement that into session design? Yeah, I mean, so if we're looking at, say, the, the senior international team, so we'd, we'd look at our performances, we'd review training. From that, we kind of had an idea on where we wanted the team to go, how we wanted to improve. And from that, we would then design sessions um, and very much, again, another skill that's required is you spend hours early days about, you know, people wanting to come along to you, watch your training and, and copy your practices. You know, if good coaches, particularly in the end, are the ones who are designing their training because they know what they're trying to improve um, and, and be good enough to do it. 
but also to be clever enough to know if it's not quite working how you wanted it to work because of course you'll do session you'll do some sessions the same that you know give you an outcome but the sessions you're doing to create a different learning and then new sessions have a go at them if they're not quite wording working look how you can tweak them so i spend a lot of time kicking cones in and out to make pitches bigger or smaller not because i wanted necessarily success but i wanted the learning that was right to come from those sessions so if it was too easy i needed to change it if it wasn't getting the natural effect on i could change it so yeah so be, be willing to work, know what you're gonna know what you want to work on be willing to have a go at things in terms of your session design and be willing to change it when it's not quite working for you. I think it's a good nuggets there. I think the game is the ultimate feedback probably towards the coach, whether the practice is working or it's, or it's not. If someone came to watch one of your sessions, Bobby, what would they, what would they say? Or what would you hope they say? Um, <laughs> not necessarily the session design, but the feelings and the emotions and maybe the psychology around some of it. Yeah, I think if I think if I'm working with a senior group, and again, I think this is different. I think they would, they probably, whether I like it or not, probably say he doesn't say that much. Um, I'd like to think that our learning is coming, as you say, from the session. So it allows the session designs good enough that actually it creates the self-learning for the players. There'd be a lot of control of the sessions by the players, and between assistant coaches. And other co um, and players, or me and the assistant coach, me and the players, there'd be lots of little conversations going on. So there's that kind of feeling of so there's there's stuff always happening, even though it might not be barked or or or, or, or shouted at. Mm. I um I was looking. I'll tell you a story. I was lucky enough to um, my first professional. I retired from playing, and I, my first job I got was down here at the university in Bath, and we had a lot of um, coaches here. And this was just before the Sydney Olympics. And I asked Malcolm Arnold, who was the athletics coach here, to, uh, if I could watch one of his sessions. And I'm thinking I'm going to learn something. Malcolm Arnold, for those who don't know, was Colin Jackson, Jason Gardner's coach. But he's, again, because he was Colin Jackson's coach, he was the world record holder for 110 meter hurdles. He, um, he was a hurdle specialist. Lewis, who was, uh, ended up being a heptathlon champion at the Sydney Olympics, um, came down to do a hurdle session with him. And I thought, I'm going to learn so much about how he designs his sessions, how he runs his sessions, how he talks, how he gives feedback. And if you don't know Malcolm, he's, he's a grumpy old sod who has a flat cap and he just holds, folds his arms like this. And Denise Lewis has run three sessions and I'm stood next to Malcolm all excited like a giddy young coach. And, and Malcolm hasn't said anything. The third time Denise Lewis runs down, she turns to him and says, Malcolm, are you going to give me any advice? And Malcolm goes, you trail legs half a foot too high. She walks back, she runs her next one, her trail leg has dropped half a foot too low. And Malcolm just turned to me and goes, that's why you work with the best. And it was kind of like, he gave one point, that was the session. And he was kind of, now he's working with Denise Lewis, so he has an advantage, he's working with a high quality athlete, but less is more sometimes. And if you really want to make a point last, make sure it's not in the middle of lots of other stuff going on. I oh, think I got cool. sidetracked there, but it was, a, it, was, it was just one that really made me chuckle, but also really lasted with me, as you can tell. And I think a lot of us coaches obviously would have played the game, and I think we've all been on that 
that side when we're standing in the middle of the pitch and the coach is talking for 15 minutes and you can't remember the thing that you said in the first minute. So I think that's a big takeaway. Yeah. Um, got a question here from Jonathan Taylor. If you could change one thing um, about hockey in England, what would it be? Just one. Um, Just, well, you can have three or four. <laughs> there might be even more. Um, I'd love... I'd love to some packed impact on the culture where lots of hockey clubs are doing lots of junior development every day and have the funding to do it properly. So I am jealous of what you see in Holland. I know it's different. I know we can't solve it overnight, but what we try, what we've made the mistake before and I've been around longer to see it is we think if we change the league structure, that might actually make any difference to our quality of our domestic product, the culture within our country and in our clubs, how we can get the, the local kids being able to get along to their local hockey club three, four times a week and train and play and have fun and socialize. It'd be me. I don't think it's going to happen overnight. I know but there are some really good examples in the country where it does happen, but it's not very many. Mm. And I think if you grow that bigger pool, you then have more players to hopefully pick from at well, exactly. and, and from different backgrounds, which is one of my big passions, is, is that we want, a, we want a national team that comes from all over the country from different backgrounds. Um, and we have to somehow facilitate that, and that's getting more difficult. Um, I remember talking about my last point, I remember when Russell Garcia came into my assistant coach, and he's, he'd been away from the UK for a long time and he just couldn't believe how little clubs were training and he said my seven-year-old at Bloomingdale seven-year-old girl trained more than our Premier League clubs and that's that's one of the challenges yeah um we've got another question here of, from Matthew Mason um how would you create a game like scenario for long corners uh, maybe an area of the game that's probably undervalued potentially uh, and how would you then reinforce that with good motivation yeah, we, we did a lot of long corner practice um, with the new rule because there's definitely a massive opportunity and, and we created different scenarios, different practices. Um, it's the usual stuff. It's do you put a, a, put a goal on the halfway line so the defensive team have got a really op good counter opportunity? You know, stuff like that. So you, you really, re you're trying to reward the defensive side of it. Attack it, change the numbers slightly so you get your principles across and then make it harder by building your numbers up without that there's a um, but what are you trying to achieve again comes back to what you're trying to achieve what are your principles of play in that area around long corners and then and then just create them just create the opportunity for the players to to put them into practice and that might be making it a bit easier to start with so they get get the fundamentals right and then making it harder but if you're working again try and work as much as that's why i talked about first thing i did was talk about putting a goal in for the defense to attack kids try and work as much two way as possible because that's the reality of the game and certainly senior international level if you have a horrible turnover and attacking long corner it can be in your net quickly um and one final question from from santi fresher again um we're obviously all in a situation around this coronavirus that's literally taken over the world maybe in some of the work you're doing now with gymnastics what's how are you supporting the coaches and what are the biggest challenges that are being faced around that? 
Yeah, so so a lot, we have a number of national coaches. We have a lot more personal coaches. Some of those are furloughed, so that's a new word we've all found out for those of us in the UK. It basically means the government will pay 80% of their salary, but they can't do any work, but they can still do some training. So what we have set up is coaches forums online, using Zoom, using other platforms to, to actually do more coaches meetings and picking a topic each week to do it. So I have a number of those groups working each week and they're fascinating. And I really encourage people to do more of that kind of thing while they've got the time to just find opportunities because just look, there's some great ones out there to find opportunities you probably wouldn't get either because other people are too busy or you're too busy. So we're creating, I say, learning opportunities, seeing if we can get some external people in, but even just having time spent as groups of coaches talking about the challenges is a great opportunity. Uh, Bobby, two kind of quick fire questions um, to wrap it up and we're very grateful for your time. Uh, your favourite coaching moment? You say rapid fire, sorry. That's a tough one. <laughs> I, tell, I tell you why, because there's, there's some interesting, there's some obvious ones were like when we won the 2009 Euros and England hadn't won anything for 100 years, England men, sorry. And that was obviously a, a fantastic moment. Some big wins. Beating Australia after we hadn't beaten them for 25 years was quite useful, uh, quite nice. But, but to be honest with you, the things that often, and I'll, my, my soft side will come out here. Personal connections with individuals where you know you've made a difference to their lives is um, are, the, are often the things that really land most with you. And I'll, I'll tell you, some, that has included both people who've been highly successful as hockey players, really making a difference to them. But it's also things like, I, I'm quite proud of the fact that as a young coach, I managed to talk someone out of being a hockey player. They were highly talented, really, you know, seen as a, someone who could, could, could play at the highest level, but ultimately they didn't want to do it. And I had to speak to that person and just basically set, was open and honest enough with them to know that it wasn't for them. And they, I've seen them later in life and they had a passion for something else and they've been incredibly successful at something else. But if I'd have just kept pushing down, you need to be a hockey player, you need to train hard, you need to train harder, they may not have found that passion. So that's an odd one, I know, but something I think about, the things you'll look back on is some of those individual connections, both as a coach, how you help people develop. Yeah. And that would be the same as a player, some of the personal connections you had with people as players, far more than medals or anything else. And there's always a person behind the person with the stick and the borders and there's, you know, there's an individual there that's got a life outside of hockey. Absolutely. And, and, and there's, a, there's a person behind the coach as well and the coaches need to look after themselves and look after each other as well. Mm. One final question. Uh, who's had the biggest influence or what has had the biggest influence on you and your philosophy? Um, Not necessarily my philosophy, but definitely the biggest influence would be my, probably my family in terms of both um, my parents growing up and the support they gave me, my two brothers, but then my wife and my kids have definitely had the biggest influence on me as a person and me being able to get to work and do the job I do. Um, in terms of my philosophy as a coach, I, I wouldn't pick one person because there's been so many people who've had such great influences on me, both the coaches I've worked with 
mentors I've had going in and working with other sports, support staff I've worked with, players, everybody. You know, there's just so many people you could name who have who have helped develop and support me along the way. That 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 yeah, there's too many to mention, unfortunately. Um, Bobby, thank you very much for your time. Uh, we're no very problem. grateful. Um, coaches, I'd encourage you to kind of share your reflections um, on the Coach Logic platform and across social media. And this video will be up there within the coming day, so you can share and join the conversation again. But um, stay safe, everyone. And absolutely, uh, stay safe. Stay safe, and thank you for uh, logging in. Cheers, everyone. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the European Hockey Federation podcast presented by the Coaching Lab, powered by CoachLogic and supported by the FIH Academy. More podcasts will follow for Series 1 over the next six weeks. Follow Eurohockey.org on all social media to keep in touch.